Chapter Four of Jacqueline of Golden River by H. M. Egbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Four, Simon Larue. With Jacqueline's arm drawn through mine, I paid a visit to the bank in which I had deposited my legacy, and drew out fifteen hundred dollars next depositing Jacqueline's money to my own account. It amounted to almost exactly $8,000. The receiving teller must have thought me an eccentric to carry so large a sum, and I knew he thought that Jacqueline and I had just been married, for I saw him smile over the entry that he made in my bank book. I wanted to deposit her money in her own name, but this would have involved inquiries and explanations which I was not in a position to satisfy. So there was nothing to do but deposit it in my own, and afterward I could refund it to her. I said that the receiving teller smiled. He wore that indescribable congratulatory look with which it is the custom to favor the newly married. In fact, we were exactly like a honeymoon couple. Although I endeavored to maintain an air of practical self-assurance, there was now a new shyness in her manner, an atmosphere of undefinable but very real sweetness in the relationship between us, which set my heart hammering at times when I looked at her flushed cheeks and her fair hair blown about her face, and hiding the glances which she stole timidly at me. It was like a honeymoon departure only with another man's wife, and that made the sentiment more elevated and more chivalrous, for it set a seal of honor on me which must remain unbroken till the time arrived. I wondered, as we strolled up Fifth Avenue together, how much she knew, what she remembered, and what thoughts were coursing through her head. That childlike faith of hers was marvelously sweet. It was an innocent confidence, but it was devoid of weakness. I believed that she was dimly aware that terrible things lay in the past, and that she trusted to her forgetfulness as a shield to shelter not only herself but me, and would not voluntarily recall what she had forgotten. It was necessary to buy her an outfit of clothes, and this problem worried me a good deal. I hardly knew the names of the things she required. I believe now that I had absurd ideas as to the quantity and consistency of women's garments. I was afraid that she would not know what to buy, but as the morning wore away, I realized that her mental faculties were not dimmed in the least. She observed everything, clapped her hands joyously as a child at the street sights and sounds, turned to wonder at the elevated and at the high buildings. I ventured, therefore, upon the subject that was perplexing me. "'Jacqueline,' I said, "'you know that you will require an outfit of clothes before we start for your home. Not too many things, you know,' I continued cautiously, "'but just enough for a journey.' "'Yes, Paul,' she answered. How much money shall I give you, Jacqueline? Fifty dollars? she inquired. I gave her a hundred and took ridiculous delight in it. 
We entered a large department store, and I mustered up enough courage to address the young woman who stood behind the counter that displayed the largest assortment of women's garments. "'I want a complete outfit for—for for this lady,' I stammered. "'Enough for—' I hesitated again. "'A two-weeks journey.' The young woman smiled in a very pleasant way, and two others, who were near enough to have overheard, turned and smiled also. "'Bermuda or Niagara Falls?' asked the young woman. "'I beg your pardon?' I inquired, conscious that my face was insufferably hot. "'If you are taking Madame to Bermuda, she will naturally require cooler clothing than if you are taking her to Niagara Falls,' the young woman explained, looking at me with benevolent patience. And seeing that I was wholly disconcerted, she added, Perhaps Madame might prefer to make her own selection. As I stood in the center of the store, apparently a stumbling block to every shopper, Jacqueline flitted here and there, until a comfortable assortment of parcels was accumulated upon the counter. "'Where shall I send them, Madame?' inquired the saleswoman. There was a suitcase to be bought, so I had them transferred to the trunk and leather goods department where I bought a neat sole-leather suitcase which, at Jacqueline's practical suggestion, was changed for a lighter one of plated straw. After that I abstained from misdirecting my companion's activities. And everybody addressed her as Madame, and everybody smiled on us, and sometimes I reflected miserably upon the wedding ring, and then again smiled too and forgot watching Jacqueline's eager face flushed with delights as she looked at the pretty things in the store. I had meditated taking her into Tiffany's to buy her a trinket of some kind. A ring seemed forbidden, and I was weighing the choice between a bracelet and a watch, my desire to acquire a whole counter of trinkets rapidly getting the better of my judgment, when something happened which put the idea completely out of my head. It was while Jacqueline was examining the suitcases that my attention was drawn to a tall, elderly man with a hard, drawn, and deeply lined, weather-beaten face, and wearing a massive fur overcoat, open in front, who was standing in the division between the trunk department and that adjoining it, immediately behind Jacqueline. He was looking at me with an unmistakable glance of recognition. I knew that I had seen him several times before, but though his features were familiar, I had forgotten his name. In fact, I had seen him only a week before, but the events of the past night had made a week seem like a week of years. I stared at him, and he stared back at me, and made an urgent sign to me. Keeping an eye on Jacqueline, and not losing sight of her at any time, I followed the tall man. As I neared him, my remembrance of him grew stronger. I knew that powerful slouching gait, that heavy tread. When he turned round, I had his name on my lips. It was Simon LaRue. "'So you've got her,' he began in a hoarse, forcible whisper. "'Where did you pick her up?' 
I was hurrying away from Tom's office when I happened to see you two entering Mitchenbush's. I remembered then that the office in which I had drudged was only a couple of blocks away. I made no answer, but waited for him to lead again, and I was thinking hard. "'There's the devil to pay,' he went on in his execrable accent. "'Louis came on post-haste, as you know, and he hasn't turned up this morning yet. Ah, I always knew Tom was close, but I never dreamed you knew anything. When I used to see you sitting near the door in his office, writing in those Socrative books, I thought you were just a clerk. And you were in the know all the time, you were. You know what happened last night? he continued, looking furtively around. It was an unfortunate affair, I said guardedly. Unfortunate, he repeated, staring at me out of his bloodshot eyes. It was the devil, by gosh! Who was he? His face was fiery red, and he cast so keen a look at me that I almost thought he had discovered he was betraying himself. It was lucky I was in New York when Louis wired us she had flown, he continued. I omit the oaths which punctuated his phrases. Lucky I had my men with me, too. I didn't think I'd need them here, but I'd promised them a trip to New York, and then comes Louis's wire. I put them on the track. I guessed she'd go to Daly's. Old Duquesne was mad about that crazy system of his, and had been writing to him. He used to know Daly when they were young men together at Saratoga and Montreal, and in Quebec, in the times when they had good horses and high play there. I tell you, it was ticklish. There was millions of dollars worth of property walking up Broadway, and they'd got her, with a taxi waiting nearby, when that devil's fool strolls up and draws a crowd. If I'd been there, I'd have... A string of vile expletives followed his last remark. They got on his track and followed them to the Merrimack, he continued, and they never came out. They waited all night till nine this morning, and they never came out. My God, I thought her a good girl. It's awful. Who was he? Say, how much do you know? His face was dripping with sweat, and he shot an awful look at Jacqueline as she bent over the suitcase. I could hardly keep my hands off him, but Jacqueline's need was too great for me to give vent to my passion. I remembered now that, after sending Jacqueline to the clerk's desk alone, she had gone to a side entrance. I had joined her there and left the hotel with her in that fashion. At any rate, Simon's words showed me that his hired men were not acquainted with the rest of the night's work. I gathered from what he had said that the possession of Jacqueline was vitally important both to LaRue and to Tom Carson for some reason connected with the Northern Exploitation Company, and that they had endeavored to kidnap her and hold her till the man Louis arrived to advise them. "'How much do you know?' hissed Simon at me. "'LaRue,' I said, "'I'm not going to tell you anything. 
you will remember that I was employed by Mr. Carson. Ain't I as good as Carson? What are you going to do with her? You'd better go back to the office and wait, unless you want to spoil the game by letting her see you, I said. I was sure he was hiding from her intentionally, and I could see that he believed I was working for Carson, for though he scowled fearfully at me, he seemed impressed by my words. "'I don't know whether Tom's running straight or not,' he said huskily. "'But let me tell you, young man, it'll pay you to keep in with me, and if you've got any price, name it.' He shook his heavy fist over me. I believe the clerks thought he was going to strike me, for they came hurrying toward us. But I saw Jacqueline approaching, and without another word, Leroux turned away. Jacqueline caught sight of his retreating figure, and her eyes widened. I thought I saw a shadow of fear in them. Then the memory was effaced, and she was smiling again. I instructed the store to call a messenger and have the suitcase taken at once to the baggage room in the Grand Central Station. "'Now, Jacqueline, I'm going to take you to lunch,' I said, "'and afterward we will start for home.' Outside the store I looked carefully around and espied LaRue almost immediately lighting a cigar in the doorway of a shop. I hit upon a rather daring plan to escape him. Carson's offices were in a large modern building, with many elevators and entrances. I walked toward it with Jacqueline, being satisfied that LaRue was following us, entered about twenty-five yards before him, and ascended in the elevator, getting off, however, on the floor above that on which the offices were. I was satisfied that LaRue would follow me a minute later, under the impression that we had gone to the Northern Exploitation Company, and so, after waiting a minute or two, I took Jacqueline down in another elevator, and we escaped through the front entrance and jumped into a taxicab. I was satisfied that I had thrown LaRue off the scent, but I took the precaution to stop at a gunsmith's shop and purchase a pair of automatic pistols and a hundred cartridges. The man would not sell them to me there, on account of the law, but he promised to put them in a box and have them delivered at the station, and there, in due course, I found them. But I was very uneasy until we found ourselves in the train, and then, at last, everything was accomplished, our baggage upon the seats beside us, and our berths secured. At three precisely the train pulled out, and Jacqueline nestled down beside me, and we looked at each other and were happy. And then, at the very moment when the wheels began to revolve, LaRue stepped down from a neighboring train. As he passed our window, he spied us. He started and glared, and then he came racing back toward us, shaking his fists and yelling vile expletives. He tried to swing himself aboard in his fury, despite the fact that the doors were all shut. A porter pushed him back, and the last I saw of him he was still pursuing us, screaming with rage. I knew that he would follow on the nine o'clock train, reaching Quebec about five the following afternoon. 
That gave us five hours' grace. It was not much, but it was something to have Jacqueline safe with me even until the morrow. I turned toward her, fearful that she had recognized the man and realized the situation. But she was smiling happily at my side, and I was confident then that, by virtue of that same mental inhibition, she had neither seen nor heard the fellow. "'Paul, it is bon voyage for both of us,' she said. "'Yes, my dear.' She looked at me thoughtfully a minute. "'Paul, when we get home—' "'Jacqueline?' "'I do not know,' she said, putting her palms to her head. "'Perhaps I shall remember then. But you—you you must stay with me, Paul.' Her lips quivered slightly. She turned her head away and looked out of the window at the horrible maze of houses in the Bronx and the disfiguring signboards. New York was slipping away. All my old life was slipping away like this, and evil following us. I slipped one of the automatics out of my suitcase into my pocket and swore that I would guard Jacqueline from any shadow of harm. Each minute that I spent with her increased my passion for her. I had ceased to have illusions on that score. One question recurred to my mind incessantly. Could she be ignorant that she had a husband somewhere? Would she tell me, or was this the chief of the memories that she had laid aside? I opened one of the newspapers that I had bought at the station bookstand, dreading to find in flaring letters the headlines announcing the discovery of the body. I found the announcement, but in small type. The murder was ascribed to a gang battle. The man could not be identified, and apparently both police and public considered the affair merely one of those daily slayings that occur in that city. Another newspaper devoted about the same amount of space to the account, but it published a photograph of the dead man taken in the alley where, it appeared, the reporter had viewed the body before it had been removed. The photograph looked horribly lifelike. I cut it out and placed it in my pocketbook. For the present I felt safe. I believed the affair would be forgotten soon. And meanwhile here was Jacqueline. I turned toward her. She was asleep at my side, and her head drooped on my shoulder. We sat thus all the afternoon, while the city disappeared behind us, and we passed through Connecticut and approached the Vermont hills. Then we had a gay little supper in the dining car. Afterward I walked to the car entrance and flung the broken dog collar away, across the fields. That was the last link that bound us to the past. Then the berths were lowered and made up, and fastening from my upper place the curtain which fell before Jacqueline's, I knew that, for one night more at least, I held her in safe ward. End of chapter 4 Recording by Roger Moline